If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Today we'll be looking at verses 19 through 24. Read them through and then we'll come back to them later. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There have been times when teaching uh, in the university when I've given an assignment, a reading assignment, and we come together and I want to discuss the readings, um, have them break up into groups, and I will oftentimes say, uh, the reading that you've done, I want you to summarize it in one word. Okay? Not, not, not a sentence, not a paragraph, but one word. It's more difficult than you might imagine. But if I were to ask you, how would you summarize the first 18 verses of chapter 6? We've been looking at them. They talk about giving to those in need, about prayer and fasting. Uh, What would that one word be? Some might suggest piety, because these are acts of piety that the Jews practiced. Another might say show, as in don't do it for show. Some might say hypocrites, as in don't be like the hypocrites. Uh, It's a bit of a stretch because there are also the pagans that are involved. I think if I were to summarize the first 18 verses into one word, it would be audience. Audience. In teaching his followers about giving to those in need and praying and fasting, Jesus focuses on who is their audience. See, the hypocrites do it to be seen. Okay? Um, we're not to be like the hypocrites. That's not our audience. We do these things for our Father. And He sees even what is done in secret, and He will reward us. If you look at verse number 18, the, the, the last verse of the section, um, So that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So why are you doing what you're doing? Who is your audience? And Jesus, even in teaching us the Lord's Prayer, tells us about who our audience is. Our Father in heaven who has a holy name, who has a kingdom, whose will is being done, who gives us our daily bread who does not lead us into temptation. Yeah. This, is the one to whom, this is the one for whom we are doing these things. He is our audience. Today we come to the second half of Matthew chapter 6. And it, it divides easily into four sections. We're looking at the first one today. Um, actually the first three. Uh, not storing up treasure on earth, being generous, serving God, not money. And then, the Lord willing, we will look at not being anxious. 
anxiety as a, as a problem, not being anxious about food and clothing, basic things that we need. In each of these sections, Jesus presents us with two alternatives. So either you do this or that. So treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. Light in your body through the eye or darkness. Who is your master, God or money? And lastly, what is your preoccupation, your body or the kingdom of heaven? We will look at this as we go along. I haven't decided yet if we're going to go on to chapter 7, but if we do go on to chapter 7, it's fascinating that what we find in the second half of chapter 6 matches the first part of chapter 7, almost um, idea for idea, at least in the structure. And we will see that, the Lord willing, if we get there. The first part that we're looking at deals with treasure, and in chapter 7 it deals with your neighbor. Uh, These are not as far apart as we might think. How should I do or what should I do with treasure and how should I treat my neighbor? In the first three verses here today, in 19, 20, and 21, we have a warning against the wrong way. We have a prescription for the right way. This is how you're supposed to do it. And then in verse number 21, we have the principle stated. So let's look at the warning. Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Let's start out with what this verse is not saying. Um, Jesus is not saying there's, you shouldn't own anything. There is no ban on possessions here. In fact, if you think about it, two of the Ten Commandments, uh, do not steal and do not covet, assume or presuppose possession. If I steal from someone, that means it belongs to that person. They have the right to possess it. I don't have the right to possess it when I steal it. And the same thing with coveting. If my neighbor has something and I want it, well, it actually belongs to my neighbor. And God doesn't say my neighbor is wrong for having that. He's saying I'm wrong for coveting what in fact is not mine. So there is no ban on owning things in what Jesus says here in verse 19. Secondly, Jesus is not opposed to the expression saving for a rainy day. The ant is praised in Proverbs chapter 6 for making provisions for the winter. Let me read to you. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider his ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. In other words, there's nothing wrong with saving. There's nothing wrong with putting something aside for a future eventuality. The believer who makes no provision for his family is worse than an unbeliever, we are told in 1 Timothy chapter 5. The third thing that this is not saying is that we cannot enjoy what God, in fact, has provided for us. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher says, Then I realize that it is good and proper for man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift from God. So Jesus is not saying it is wrong even to be wealthy or to have possessions or to enjoy them. Um, It is not wrong to save for future eventualities. This is not what Jesus is saying. You will notice that the word treasure here is not goods in general. Okay, it speaks of, I think, something more, much more specific. Um, it isn't your daily bread, if you wish, but it is a treasure. 
And the verb that is used to store up actually means to treasure. So what Jesus is saying is, do not treasure treasure. Okay, that something is seen as special to you and you treat it that way. And in many ways, it becomes all-encompassing. It becomes the reason that you live. It's why you get up in the morning. The point here is not possession, but accumulation. Jesus is not opposed to possessing things, but it is in the accumulating of things, the selfish accumulation of things, where we do it for ourselves and ourselves only. You'll notice it says, do not store up for yourselves. The issue becomes selfishness. That is, you accumulate things as if, first of all, you're going to live forever, or at least for a long, long time. Or secondly, your goods will be here forever, if not for a long, long time. Well, the first one, we know better. We know we're not going to live forever. We know that we're not, our lives here on earth are not endless. Um, and so I think in many ways that's why Jesus doesn't deal with that. It's the second thing. It is the second thing. Earthly goods will not last. There are at least three enemies to earthly possessions. Moth, rust, thieves. Um, moth speaks of nature. The simply the wearing away that happens. You can have a fine suit or article of clothing and moths will come in and eat it and then it's destroyed. Then there is rust. You know, moth, I think, represents nature. Rust represents time and history. Just as time goes on, things begin to wear, the wear and tear of time. And then thirdly, you have thieves. These are our fellow human beings who will take what you have either before you die or after you die. But they will take what you have. A sensible person will recognize that what we have is very temporary. The teacher in Ecclesiastes used the word vanity, which I think maybe points us in the wrong way. It's not saying that things are useless, but rather he is saying that these things are temporary. They are cursed with temporality and transience just as we are. Um, I hesitate to, to poke fun at people who uh, buy Apple products, um, but I think you don't need to be told about the temporary nature of things because it seems like every year a new version comes out. Um, but there is something in us as human beings that we know better, but we think we're just going to live forever. And we buy something and we think it's going to last forever. And Jesus says, no. This is not how you're to live. You're not to treasure treasure. Now, having told us the wrong way, he's warned us against the wrong way, Jesus, in verse number 20, tells us the right way. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus states positively the things he said negatively in the previous verse. So don't store up things, uh, treasures here on earth. You are, to tr you are to store them up in heaven. Here on earth, moth, rust, thieves, in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, there, there are no moths, if you wish, rust or thieves to break in and steal. The Christian faith stands apart in this regard. It is said that the Buddha, when he came to understand the temporary nature of the, the, of the world, the material world, decided that the answer was to get rid of all desire. That if, in fact, 
you desired things and that was what was holding you to this world. And the way to transcend it in a way, in a way is to say, get rid of all desire. Jesus doesn't say this. Jesus does not tell us to get rid of desire. Rather, he redirects it. There is to be something that is precious to us. There is to be something that is treasure to us. It's just not to be here on earth in this life. But there's something that transcends this life, that which is in heaven. He tells us that rather than being directed by our own human ambition and passion, we should in fact make it our goal to please our Father. Every person has a governing passion, an ambition, an investment, if you wish, somewhere. It's part of being human. I'm convinced, by the way, that ambition is a gift from God. Otherwise, we would just lay in bed and starve to death. Um, We all have ambition to get up. If nothing else, we have to get food and maybe a place to stay. I mean, we all have ambition. The question is, which way is it directed? Is it directed at that which is temporary or is it directed at that which is eternal? The question is, where or what is our treasure or ambition? Or even better, if you remember the summary of the first 18 verses, who is our audience? For whom are we doing these things? Jesus does not get rid of desire. He does not get rid of ambition. He elevates it. It is right for us to have ambition. The issue is, what are we ambitious for? A Christian is to be ambitious and passionate, enterprising, zealous, but within the proper framework. And the framework is found in verse number 20. Your treasures in heaven. But what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, there are at least two possibilities. One is, in a sense, postpone all satisfaction in this life and put it off for an eternal future, future rewards in heaven. Jesus has already spoken of rewards in heaven. You may remember in the Beatitudes, blessed are, for theirs are. There is that, that idea of reward that we've already seen. Some of them are seen as present. Some are seen as future. And then here in chapter 6, we've been reading you know, the three acts of piety, and they all, Jesus speaks of the issue of your Father in heaven rewarding you. Uh, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Then giving to those in need, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. you know, if you give something to someone, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't do it to be seen. Your Father, in fact, knows, and he will reward you. And when it comes to praying, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So we have seen this issue of reward. And yet there is a part of us, we might want to say a pious part of us, that says, eh, I shouldn't be motivated by reward. You know, I should want to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Virtue is its own reward. You do a good thing because, in fact, it's the right thing to do. Um, I mentioned the Buddha earlier in Islam, a, a certain mystic, a Sufi, said, If I worship thee in fear of hell, burn me in hell. And if I worship thee in hope of paradise, exclude me from paradise. But if I worship thee for thine own sake, withhold not thy everlasting beauty. No, there is nothing wrong with desire or ambition or reward. You see, 
you have two choices, not three. Either God will reward you or God will judge you. There isn't a middle where, eh, whatever. You know, there isn't that. I think that's where we, where we think things are. But God will either condemn you or God will reward you. See, I think if we see it in those terms, then, okay, suddenly the whole dynamic changes. It isn't like, yeah, I just want to live my life you know, under the radar, don't want to raise any you know, fuss, and I don't, I don't need any reward from God, just don't want to go to hell. You know. No. It's an either-or situation. Either God will reward us, or he, in fact, will condemn us. We should not discount what God will give us. Jesus spoke of rewards without hesitation and of judgment as well. He didn't teach us that we should do good things, the good should be done for its own sake, without any thought of consequence, that virtue is its own reward. No. Because then those things become God. What we do, we do for God. Okay? We don't do it because it's its own reward. We do it because other, our, our Father will either reward us or he will, in fact, judge us. As pious as me, we might try to sound, the fact is we do things for reward. We either want to be noticed by others or we want to congratulate ourselves or we do it for God. We saw this in the three acts of piety. I said there were two possibilities. The second possibility deals, it comes from the, word in, the words in heaven, which we've seen already in this chapter. Your father in heaven and when we pray, our Father in heaven. Storing up treasures in heaven means acting, doing, and living with our Father in heaven as our audience. There it is again, the summary of the first 18 verses. He is our audience. This is why we do what we do. Jesus said of himself, of himself I always do what pleases him. That is his Father in heaven. So reward is not something that can be calculated, nor should we try. I come from a tradition in which oftentimes rewards were spoken of in terms of crowns or stars in your crowns or streets of gold, um, which I always wondered, you know, if, if heaven has streets of gold, so what? It's not like there's a mall somewhere that you can spend it. I mean, we are not to calculate. The reality is the greatest reward that we could have, if we will recognize it, is to be in the presence of God himself. To please him and to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. The reward is personal. It's not impersonal. It's not financial. It's not something that can be calculated. Whatever reward our Father gives us, by the way, will be because of his grace and not out of debt. It's like, well, you did a good job, so I guess I have to reward you. It is because of his grace. And that personal reward that we will have will be to be in the presence of God himself. Which again, if you think about it, it's either or. Either in the presence of God or cast out of the presence of God. There's no middle like, well, you know, I don't want to bother God and I don't want to go to hell, so I just sort of stay in the middle path. No either in the presence of God or cast out. By the way, in chapter 25, we have the parable of the talents and the two servants who do well, 
part of the reward, not only is what they earned doubled, okay, they doubled it and then they're given more. The master says, come and share your master's happiness. What a reward. Verse number 21 is the principle, okay? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the key to the entire passage. Those things which are important to us will be the things that fill our hearts and give us a sense of purpose. Where your goal is, there your heart will be also. Goals and treasures determine our actions. If your goal is to impress others, then you will be rewarded accordingly. You'll act accordingly. One writer put it this way, the things we treasure actually govern our lives. What we value tugs at our minds and emotions. It consumes our time with planning, daydreaming, and effort to achieve. So ask yourself today, what is important to me? What fills my heart? What fills my dreams at night or in the day? What fills my life? Now, this may not be the, west, the best way to state this. Um, perhaps we should say, who is it that I am trying to please? Because there is much that fills our lives, those we love, our families, our jobs, our careers, God's creation, man's creations. These, I'm convinced, are gifts from God. And it, there's nothing wrong with them. They can bring us joy, and they are to be received with thanksgiving. But far too often, the gift becomes the idol. And rather than the giver, the gift becomes more important. It becomes our treasure. What we need to do is to accept from God what he has given us so freely, and yet never lose sight of who we are trying to please. Not suddenly be focused on what he has given us, and then before we know it, we've gone off the path. I learned to drive, I think I was 17 years old, My mother got tired of driving me around. We were here in the States. And so she said I had to take driver's ed, which was in Missouri, at least, you did your sophomore year. But I was there my junior year, so I missed all that. So I had to take it at nighttime. And one of the things I had to learn, and I remember very distinctly going down a street, I had to learn to look different ways without turning the steering wheel. And I remember the teacher was bringing me home and I said, I'm doing really well, aren't I? And as I looked at him, I went off to the right and he grabbed the steering wheel. As Christians, we have to keep our, our mind focused on pleasing God and yet at the same time, enjoy the gifts he's given us. Not have the gifts suddenly have us go off to the right or to the left, but our thoughts will be on him. The things he has given us should not cause us to take our eyes off of seeking to please him. Now we come to the second part of this passage. And it is actually more difficult than the first part. I think the first part seems fairly straight. Um, It's called the parable of the eyes. or It's actually more of a riddle or a proverb. On the surface, it seems that Jesus is making sort of a general statement. It doesn't seem that difficult, but it doesn't really flow with the passage. And when we come to chapter 7, we will see that Jesus there also gives a parable of the eye, which fits into the passage. But it is incredibly important for what we see here. Look at verse 22. Here is the principle. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. What does this mean? Again, I think it's more difficult than it seems. 
The problem is we tend to see this verse in light of what we know or what we understand. Um, and particularly if your eyes are good, if you've got good eyesight, we would say if your eyesight is 20-20, uh, then you're doing well. We view this scientifically. You know, the, the light enters the body through uh, the various parts of the eye. You have the lens, the retina, the cornea, the optic nerve, and then finally all the messages are received in the brain. Um, and that's scientifically, but even proverbially, we say the eyes are the window to the soul. Jesus is not talking about this at all in the way that we might imagine. When we read, if your eyes are good, your whole light will be full of light, we think if you've got good eyesight, you will in fact be able to let the light come into your life. But he's not saying this. In the Old Testament, we find fascinatingly, and I think we might skip over it too easily, the eyes being referred to in a very metaphorical way. So for example, when your eyes are dimmed, it doesn't mean you've got bad eyesight and you have to wear glasses as I do, but it means, in fact, that you are sorrowful. In Lamentations, near the end of the book, because of this our hearts are faint, because of these things our eyes grow dim. In Job, my eyes have grown dim with grief. My whole frame is but a shadow. Conversely, if your eyes are dim, this is sorrow. Your eyes being enlightened, in fact, speaks of joy. In Ezra, but now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. It isn't, oh, now we've got better eyesight. It is, in fact, now we have a sense of joy. Psalm 13, look on me and answer, O Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. So what we see in these verses is that the absence or the presence of light is not to be taken literally. It speaks, in fact, of sorrow or joy. Life or light is seen as life. That when, you're, when your eyes grow dim, <laughs> life is going downhill. But when you have light, then in fact your life is going as it should. Again, I've talked about this passage a number of times. It's one of my stories I like about Saul. They are defeating the Philistines, but what he didn't know is his son Jonathan had actually started this whole battle and it becomes a rout. And Saul makes a command, no one is to eat before the sun goes down and whoever does will be cursed and will be put to death. Well, Jonathan had been fighting long before everybody else joined in, and he was exhausted. And he saw uh, honey. And so he took the end of his spear and got some honey out of the honeycomb and ate it. And we are told his eyes were brightened. And I don't know if you've ever been weak with hunger, and then you eat something. It's like somebody turned on the light. It isn't that your eyesight got better. It is that you have been revived. So the idea of your eyes do not, we shouldn't take it so scientifically or literally that we think it, he, Jesus is speaking about having good eyesight. Jesus is not saying that the eye is the window to the soul. Rather, the eye is the light of the soul, if you wish. See, we think of the eye as the window through which light comes. Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying the eye is the light itself which is quite different. Jesus speaks this as a proverb, almost a riddle. 
it's not new. I think his, his listeners, they got what he was saying at this point. Um, I think they got a bit nervous as he kept going on because physically, yes, we know this is true. Ethically, eh, now we're, we're a little bit uh, nervous. The application to verse number 22 is found in the next two verses. And there are three if statements, if you wish. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. I think most of the listeners, when Jesus spoke this, would have shook their head, said yes. If there had been any Baptists in the crowd, they would have said amen. Yeah, that's great. We agree with that. Um, Yeah, no problem with this whatsoever. It's almost like... Keep imagining this guy when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, nudging his buddy like, this is good stuff. And then when we come here, like, yeah. But then the second if statement, suddenly people are dropped in their tracks. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If you have any Jewish friends, or maybe in your reading, you might have come across the concept of the evil eye. Uh, the evil eye. It's something that's part of Jewish superstition today. But in the Bible, it is very specific. To have an evil eye is to be selfish. Now, if you have the NIV, which that's what we use here, you'll lose that because all the references in the Old Testament, in particular, that speak of having an evil eye, the NIV will say, you're stingy. Okay? So, uh, A stingy man is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. The King James has, he that hath an evil eye hasteth to be rich. In Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the vineyard, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And the King James, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? You see, Jesus starts with something that everyone could agree with. Just as in the Beatitudes, he started out with blessed. And people are like, yes, this is going to be good stuff. Blessed, yeah, the eye full of light, this is good stuff. And then the trap is sprung. The evil eye, selfishness and stinginess. I think we hear a lot of coughing and clearing of the throats at this point. Because they are caught, and so are we. Here we are thinking about eyes and light, and suddenly the eyes are not so bright. The issue is not what we thought. It's about our own selfishness. Because yes, we might say, yes, I'm storing up treasure in heaven, not here on earth. But the reality is we might in fact be selfish. The third if statement is, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If instead of our eyes being lamps, they are evil, then we are truly in darkness deep darkness. Why are we selfish? Because we're human, because we're sinners. Specifically in this text, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And your treasure usually doesn't include other people, unless it's getting stuff from them. It's all about you and what you're going to get. Because we are storing up treasure here on earth, we act as though things will last. and We will be around to enjoy them. We don't want people touching our stuff. We don't want people taking our stuff. Mine, mine, mine. And it is, I think, we also mess up here because we serve the wrong master. 
This is verse number 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The NIV's choice of money here, I think, is unfortunate. Mammon is the word in Aramaic, which is what Jesus was speaking when he preached this sermon. It refers to something that you put your confidence in, if you wish, treasure. It is something that you serve and not just money. Just a side note, by the way, you will either love the one and hate the other or love this one and hate the other. And for us, we're just really uncomfortable with the word hate. Um, You'll notice on Facebook, it doesn't have love and hate. It has like. I think we're much more comfortable with that middle. Yeah, I don't feel too positively about it, but not too negatively. And in scripture, it's love or hate. That's it. In the same way, it's, you know, treasure here on earth or treasure in heaven. It's it's one or the other. Either God, in fact, will reward you or he will condemn you. Either you will love or you will hate. There really isn't a third option. We would like it if there were a third option. I think we live as though there's a third option, but in fact, there is not. We cannot serve mammon. It's a form of idolatry, and it's just as illogical as idolatry. I mean, stop and think a minute. If you make an idol... How can you then worship it and say, you are my God, if you made it? Or if you bought one, somebody else made it, how can that be? In the same way, the thing that you have as your ambition suddenly becomes your God, becomes the thing that you love, the reason that you live. If you put your confidence in something and you're always adding to it, how great can that thing be? If you can make it greater, then how great is it in the first place? What is it that we put our confidence in? I can give any number of examples, but I'll just give one, and that's reputation. Um, I think we all want to have a good reputation. I, I don't think that's a bad, that that's an issue. The, the issue, though, is that we may spend a lifetime trying to have a good reputation, and we don't want anything that will diminish or tarnish that reputation. I remember... I don't know why, but very distinctly, when I was in eighth grade, I went to a private school, and so semestral exams, we all had them. They were all two hours long. And the one in English class, we had a question, and one of the questions was, explain what this means. Reputation is like a china cup. And the implication is if your reputation is cracked or destroyed, it can never be repaired. Well, in many ways... Well, for, that means there's no grace, by the way, because you know if it's shot, it's shot, then there's no getting it back. But it also refers to, also indicates that reputation can be an idol, something that you bring out on special occasions. Um, we are told about Jesus that he made himself of no reputation. He's perfect. He is God. But he made himself of no reputation. He ate with sinners. He spoke with sinners. He touched lepers. He was called names by his enemies. But he didn't come to make a reputation. That wasn't his ambition. His ambition was to do the will of the Father. He was single-minded. And we should be as well. He was single-minded and we should be treasure in heaven, not on earth. One master, not God, or God, not mammon. If we choose wrongly, then we are in darkness. 
And what's really sad is we don't even realize that we are in darkness. Paul wrote to Timothy, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. We might like to think that we could, in fact, divide our time. Okay, Sundays are for God and the rest of the week is for mammon. Um, Jesus tells us it can't be done. It cannot be done. So it's an either-or situation, treasure on earth, treasure in heaven. Either be rewarded by God or condemned and judged by God. Either we will serve God or we will serve mammon. We can't do both. We have to be single-minded. And that's what Jesus is telling us in this passage today. What would you say if I were to ask you at the end of the sermon, what is the, how would you summarize these verses into one word? Um, treasure, because that's one that keeps coming up again and again. But again, perhaps it is audience. Whom are we serving? A follower of Jesus wrote in his diary after being robbed, Lord, I thank you that I've never been robbed before. That although they took my money, they spared my life. That although they took everything, it wasn't very much. That it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Who is this man's master? Whom did he serve? Where was his treasure? But perhaps we should ask ourselves today, Who is our master? Whom do we serve? Where is our treasure? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our lives and that you've put us where we are this time in history. We thank you for all the gifts you have given us for family, for parents, for children for the health that we have, places to live. We have so much. But if we are not careful, they will distract us. We will forget that we are to be single-minded, that we can, in fact, enjoy the fine things you've given us, but it is to be our ambition to please you, to honor you, to be rewarded by you. I think often we would prefer a middle path, one that does not require too much commitment one way or the other. The word hate just seems too strong. Um, We'd prefer dislike. And perhaps even the word love seems too strong, and we'd prefer the word like. But we are either to love you, choose you, or choose the other. Choose something else to be our God, something else to give us purpose and meaning, something else to be the source of our ambition. I thank you for what Jesus says here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. May your spirit bring its truth home to our hearts. May we think on it in the days to come. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you, for the rain, for the sunshine, for all your gifts. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.